some very fundamental questions can be stated very simply. Who are you? What are you? Whether you know it or not, every human being has an answer to that question of who I am, why I'm here, and what I ought to do. And that question is answered in basically two different ways. When I go to Webster's Dictionary and I say, you know, who are I? Who am I? Why am I here? Webster would say first, to be human means a man akin to humus, that is, the ground, pertaining to or belonging to or having qualities of mankind, composed of men, having the qualities or attributes of man. So then when I look at what he says about being a man, he says a human being called man at times can particularly be the male adult of the human species. But he's a member of that family of species which is characterized by a big brain, speech, and an erect spine. When it uses the contrast with a female, it says belonging to that sex that gives birth to young or produces eggs, a girl or a woman. So if you put those facts together, we can look at who am I and why am I here from the idea of secular humanism. And basically it says you're a mutate. You're a freak of nature. You're a product of evolutionary chance. And you know why you're here? It's to claw your way to be one of the survival of the fittest. You know why you're here? It's to further the process of evolution. That something might evolve from you greater than what you are. What a pitiful way to look at myself of who am I and why am I here. From a biblical or a Christian perspective, we find something more lofty, something more significant as to who I am and why I am here. And when you look at what the Bible teaches and you look at what Christian thinkers have said, it's probably summarized best in the Westminster Shorter Catechism and the first question. Who am I? Why am I here? Well, the first question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer, the chief end of man, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What I need to understand is that Christianity is not only, from a biblical standpoint, the idea of a relationship with the living God and a deliverance from my sin and my offenses against God, but it's an outlook on life. It's a worldview. 
It takes all the important questions that man can ask about himself and provide a very satisfying answer to who am I and why I am here and a way in which I can not only cope with life, but enjoy the life that is before me. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is not only writing from the standpoint of giving us a disclosure of what God has to say about us as human beings, but he is writing as a philosopher. And he is providing us with the answer to the most fundamental, important question that we all face in life. What is my purpose? Where do I find meaning? How can I gain satisfaction in life itself? And Solomon has told us in this book that if I focus all of my attention to finding lasting satisfaction in the temporal things of this world, it's going to ultimately leave me empty. And that is chapters one through six. He looks at every endeavor that man can follow to try to find meaning and fulfillment, satisfaction in life. In chapters 7 through 12, he has been looking at, well, if that's the reality, that you don't find lasting meaning, fulfillment, and satisfaction in life, and we still are living in a world that is filled with difficulties and problems... What's the wisdom that I need to live this life triumphantly, successfully, even when I'm hit with the unexpected that comes to so many individuals and one day may be part of your life and in mine when we get blindsided by the unsuspecting. And what Solomon says is that a life centered upon and built upon God is the place of true meaning, true satisfaction, true fulfillment. In other words, your chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And as you live your purpose, there are blessings that overflow to you as well. Now, here we are at the end of this book, and Solomon's moving into his conclusion. And after laying down the foundation that life is filled with problems and perplexities and difficulties, that we all recognize there are things that we cannot change in life, it's all under the sovereign hand of God. Events that happen to individuals at time where they wish they could be different, but no matter how much wishing they do, the reality is those events are still there. They're unchangeable. And you and I need a way to cope with them and address them. And then he states, before he turns his attention to the young people, that life is a gift from God. And in spite of the difficulties and problems that are there, because of the curse that is on the earth, because of man's rebellion against God, recognize that today is a gift that he has given for you to enjoy. And he summarizes basically what 
you and I are to do as we go through life as he addresses it to young people by what he says in verses 9 of chapter 11 through verse 1 of chapter 12. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of your young manhood. And follow the impulses of your heart and the desire of your eyes, yet know that God will bring you into judgment for all these things. So, remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come... And the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. Three basic commandments. And in my version, it tells us the three R's that are important for us to remember in life. And the first R is that individuals are to rejoice every day. I am to be an individual that finds pleasure and joy in the experiences that I have each day. Now, the evil one would like to tell you a different story, wouldn't he? See, he started spreading the lies in the Garden of Eden, and sadly, Adam and Eve were very gullible. He said, can't you eat from every tree? And he said, oh, we can freely eat from all trees, but not from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because God said the day we eat, we'll die. And the creature, that is Satan, told the man and woman, you won't die. God's keeping something back from you. Because the day you eat, you'll become like God, knowing good and evil. And man was sucked in. And the devil keeps telling people the lie today. You follow God, you trust him, you're going to have a miserable life. You're going to miss out on all the fun. And notice what Solomon says first of all. That I need to understand life is a gift from God. And what I'm to do every day is rejoice in that gift. The second R, he tells us, is that the people of God are to remove vexation. That is, being angry or upset, wasting all your time getting bent out of shape, Spending all of your time being upset by what's going on. And the third R, that is really the foundation for making the other two a reality, is you're to remember your creator. When are you to do it? In the days of your youth. You're not to wait till you're old. You don't do this before the evil days, the days of difficulty, the days of problems come. No, you're to do it in the days of your youth. Now, as we've looked at these verses together, we've recognized that we can summarize verse 9 by really saying that young people are to have a joyful disposition. And that is not only to be true of young people, but you older people are to be examples of two young people to get away from the long faces and the sour attitudes and show them that being a child of God is a place of great joy and blessing. You're commanded, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. 
You have life. You have being. You have existence today because it's a gift that's given from God. Enjoy the blessings that he's given. And what we learned in our last study together is not only is the Christian individual to be a person characterized by a joyful disposition, but if I'm a child of God and I'm going through life, I get hit with things that are difficult, the unexpected come, people do things to me that hurt and are not kind, I am to R-E-L-A. X. I'm to relax. I'm to have a calm composure as I go through life to realize that the things that are coming in my life, while they may have taken me by surprise, guess what? They never take God by surprise. He's not only aware of what is going on, the Bible teaches us that before the event ever happens, he's already done what needs to be done so that it works together for the good of every one of his children. So instead of getting provoked and angry and bent out of shape, I'm to have a composure, a calmness. As I go through the storms of life, I'm to relax. And then in verse one of chapter 12, where we are today. He says, remember also your creator. Now, just a couple of things that we should highlight as we look at what Solomon is telling us is the reality that what he is teaching us here is really the foundation for being able to have a joyful, cheerful disposition to enjoy the blessings of the day. What Solomon is telling us in verse 1 of chapter uh, 12 is a prerequisite, absolutely essential to be cool, calm, and dry to follow the deodorant commercial as you go through the stressful issues of life. If your foundation to handle the unexpected problems is something other than the rock, the Lord God himself, you're going to get blown away. You're going to find you can't cope. You're going to look for some mechanism in the temporal things of this world to enable you to handle the problems that come. And as God's people, I need to remember there's no temptation, there's no trial, there's no circumstance that comes to me that's not common unto man. I go through the same kind of illnesses, the same type of unexpected difficulties that are true of all the other people in this world. I might instead wish that God gave me as a Christian a little exemption card, like playing the Monopoly game, get out of jail free card, so I don't have to go through all the difficulties that other people's, uh, people face, but he doesn't. You go through the same circumstances, and why does God do that if he really loves us and is concerned about us? 
First and foremost, because as people watch how you respond, they find out the reality of what you've been saying. My God is able to take care of me. My God strengthens and supports me. My God is worthy to be trusted because he loves me and looks out for me. So how I respond in the difficulties of life brings glory to God and a witness to others. Hey, Joe's not just blowing smoke. There's some substance to what he says. You don't learn that. You don't demonstrate that when you're going through a circumstance that's easy for everyone. It's when you go through the real struggles and difficulties of life and you handle them differently than the people of the world do that God receives the glory and a witness is being born to others that the God I love and trust is worthy of your love and trust as well. And then there's another important reason for it, for your own benefit. Every time we go through these difficulties in life, and like one of the hymns says, when we come to the end of our own hoarded resources, God's giving is just beginning. God in his grace takes care of us in ways that we could not expect. And what it causes us to do as Christian people is cling more tenaciously to God. In other words, to depend upon him, to trust him. And isn't that what delights his heart? Isn't that what is most essential for anyone that professes to be a follower of God? The just or the righteous shall live how? By faith. And God brings his children to those insurmountable, overwhelming difficulties that they might cling more tenaciously to him. And the other aspect is we learn things about the sufficiency and the character of God in those times of difficulty that we would not ever have otherwise learned. Isn't that true? It's one thing to memorize a verse to say God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in a time of trouble. But oh, the rubber meets the road when you're in a time of trouble. And you find out whether he is really the rock that can uphold you. You begin to find out that God is more than sufficient and capable to take care of you. You begin to experience a peace which surpasses all understanding that only can come from him. You find your broken heart is encouraged and built up by the God of all comfort and the Father of mercies. You learn things about him that you would not otherwise have learned. So it isn't a testimony that maybe God doesn't love you when those bad things happen. And finally, for your own benefit, it teaches you, you know, being a Christian is something supernatural. Because how I'm responding and how I'm acting in this circumstance is something that I don't really expect from myself. 
In other words, it shows the genuineness of grace at work within you and becomes an encouragement to you that you're really one of his. I marvel at times of things that God is doing in my own life, not because I deserve it, not because somehow I've merited it, but because his grace is at work to remind me again and again to be a child of God is to be a trophy of grace, and he is continually at work in each of his people. So foundationally, most importantly, as an imperative, as a command, what does he say to do? Remember your creator in the days of your youth. The word that is translated in our Bible, at least my version, as remember also, in some versions in our English versions, it's remember now. It could be translated remember even. The idea is here's especially what you need to take into account. The Hebrew word remember is one that you're familiar with in a man's name. It's Zakar, Zachariah. Zakar, remember. And the name Zachariah means the Lord remembers. Oh, it should tell us immediately that the idea of remembering my creator doesn't mean, oh yeah, forgot all about him. Because God doesn't forget anything. And if God remembers, what does it indicate? It indicates that he is now moving to do something that long ago he promised to do. And so there is much deeper understanding to the concept of remember of Zakar. It means to keep him in your mind. It means to continually take thought of him. It implies the idea that he is the ultimate priority in my life. I am depending on him. I am trusting him. I am reverencing him. And because that he is that priority in my life, it affects how I think and how I act. It benefits me within because it enables me to have joy even in the most difficult of circumstances. Isn't that what Jesus said he would give to his followers? My joy I give to you. Not like the world gives. The world's sense of joy is you got to have the right happening to have happiness. But this is an abiding joy. And the closer you draw near to God in whose presence is the fullness of joy, the more joy and cheer that you have. What was true of the 12 disciples, the apostles, as they were with the Lord? Well, the religious leaders rebuked Jesus and his followers because he said, your followers aren't running around with a long face trying to act religious. They're having joyful experiences every day. And Christ answered and said, when the bridegroom's with them, you can't have sorrow. We got a wedding coming up soon. It's going to be a joyful event and everybody there is going to have joy. In fact, if the bride and groom are smart, anybody that isn't, they ought to kick them out. And the closer I draw near to the one in whose presence is the fullness of joy, the more joy will overflow to me. 
I have him as my priority in life. And what it causes me to know is while I can't handle this situation, nothing is too hard for my God. The better I understand just how great and awesome is my being, that he names all the stars of the universe, not one of them is missing for the excellence of his power, my monumental problem is just a little molehill. When my eyes are upon the majestic greatness of God, I have an ability to relax, to be composed, even in the difficulties of life. The priority is remember your creator. Notice, first notice, we're not very far down your outline. Don't panic. But second notice, it doesn't say, remember your God. It doesn't say, remember your Savior. It doesn't say, remember your Lord. Even though all of those titles of the supreme being are appropriate for each one of us. Solomon said we are to remember our creator because by calling him the creator, it tells us first and foremost that he is the source of all things. He is the one that calls, calls all into existence. When I go to the book of Revelation, God is giving praise because those in glory are saying, worthy art thou to receive glory and honor and power because by your will and good pleasure, all things have their being and existence. Contrary to secular humanism, you're not a mutate. Contrary to secular humanism, you're not a product of biological chance. You have being and existence because God willed you into existence. You are a unique creature because God formed you the way he wanted you to be. He's the one that specifically made your unique, distinct personality that just like your fingerprints, there is no one else like you. Why is that? Remember your creator. He is the source of all life and all existence. And as the creator, he is the one that owns all that he has made. It all belongs to him. And it is of his free Good pleasure to do with every creature that he has made as it pleases him. He can raise up a Moses to be the object of his mercy. He can raise up a Pharaoh to demonstrate the greatness and superiority of his power. God has the sovereign right to do with each creature as he desires. And as our creator, 
He is the one that gives you the breath that you now take. As your creator, he is the one that appointed the day in which you would be born. He is the one that has determined the very moment that you will pass out of this world into eternity. Either into the bliss of his presence or the punishment for your ignoring and rejection of him. It's his right as the creator. And Solomon wants to emphasize the fact that it's very personal. He doesn't say, remember also the creator. He says, remember also your creator. You have life and existence because he willed it. Regardless of whether you acknowledge it or accept it, you are totally dependent on him. And because of that, every one of us has an accountability to him. Remember your creator as a child in the days of your youth before the evil days come. What days is he talking about? Before you get old. And you say, there's a lot of things I'd like to do, but I can't do them. I don't have the strength. I don't have the desire. I don't have the stamina. Sometimes I don't have the mental capability. So often as individuals get old, they lose the zest for life itself. So why is Solomon saying that to us? Not because of the lie the devil wants you to believe. That if you trust the Lord, if you walk with him, If you put your dependence upon God at an early age, you're going to miss out on all the fun things in life. No, what Solomon recognizes and wants you to understand is who can have pleasure, who can have joy apart from him? Oh, you can be happy and cheerful for a moment. But you're going to face problems in life and difficulties and won't have the basis to cope with them. You'll still be accountable to him even though you ignore him. True joy, true fulfillment in life is a life focused and built upon our Lord and our God. And Solomon is pleading at the end of this book, not just from a religious standpoint but if you're a lover of wisdom there's a wisdom here that's greater than any of the ancient Greek philosophers could ever find it's a wisdom that's greater than any of the German philosophers that people want to study in school because all of these philosophers are speculating and trying to figure out how do you put life together and where do you find meaning. And sadly, most adults and students ignore the philosophy of life that comes from God. 
Being a Christian means I love wisdom. Being a Christian means I have a worldview that makes sense. It understands my inner self. It recognizes how man can have such creative genius and at the same time do such horrific, horrible, detrimental things. He's made in the image of God, but he's fallen. And it recognizes there's a reality that's beyond the physical creation that we see and experience. By trusting him, by depending upon him, I will have joy and peace in this life and will be the only one ready to meet him in eternity. Let's heed what Solomon says. Remember, keep him foremost in your mind. Think upon him. Make him the priority in your life. Make him the focus upon which your life revolves. Make him the foundation upon which you live. Or as one individual has said, Let the thought of your creator shape your conduct as, excuse me, shape your conduct as he has complete and absolute claim over every person. A life focused on the Lord is a life filled with joy. A life without the Lord is a life with problems and emptiness. And that's what's before each one of us. Wisdom says, you're going to have unexpected things in life. And God has designed them to show you that you don't have the capability in yourself to take care of the problems that man creates and man faces. And only those that build their lives on the foundation of the Lord who have him as their vision are the ones that have true joy, a peace that surpasses all understanding, the adequate foundation to triumphantly meet the things that will come to each one of us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much again for your truth. I thank you, Father, that it provides us with the answer to the most fundamental questions that we all face in life. How I pray, Father, that you would stir the heart of each one who hears, that they may seek you and find no rest until they have their rest in you. To the glory of Christ Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen.